Welcome to Highlands Church. So glad you're here. If we've never met, my name is Manny. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and I am so delighted to be up here diving into something really, really amazing that I think God's been kind of stirring in the last few weeks in our hearts. Um, there's no room for you here. No room at all. Is exactly what the city of Honolulu told their homeless community. You see, it's Bill 73 that's called the sit and lie bill. Uh, it basically makes it a crime for you to sit or lie anywhere on the island. Kinda. So, what do you do? The Guardian uh, and also um, um, NBC News wrote this article that said that it is in fact a criminal offense to sit or to lie down in public parks and spaces if you are homeless or houseless. Apparently, on Paradise, you can't sit or lie if you don't own, rent, um, Airbnb, or stay at a hotel. So what do you do at night? I, it, I don't know. Do you lean against a tree? Like, so the advocates for justice went crazy about this, and so it made the news. You probably heard it. What do you think about that? If you're down on your luck and the shelters are full, what do you do? What would you do? One of the markers of a, uh, of a equitable and um, fair society is how they treat the most vulnerable. Because of so much financial poverty and, and homelessness that's kind of widespread, LA and cities like LA and Honolulu and San Francisco are, are trying to figure out how to solve this situation. It's a real epidemic. But what's interesting is advocates have come up with a new name in the last couple of years, which I think def uh, better defines this situation. They don't call them homeless anymore. I'm sure you've heard of this too. Now they're called houseless or unhoused. You see, there are many people in LA that live in their cars, but they have jobs. They go to the gym just like you. They hang out with you sometimes, uh, like after the gym. You don't even know that when they leave the gym or when they leave wherever you guys go together, that some, some people actually in LA actually go to their, their cars or their RVs. In, in L.A. alone, there's 69,000 people without a house. Six out of ten have become houseless for the first time in the last few years. Did you get that? Six out of ten have become houseless in the last few years. Of the 69,000, only 75% uh, 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 actually uh, don't have shelter, a car, or tent. 20,000 Angelinos live in their car or, or um, RV. It's interesting. It's not cheap to live in LA. Now, I doubt drugs was an issue back in the days of Jesus. Um, I don't know, unless they put like the wrong mushrooms in their salad or something, but, um, but poverty was a real thing in the days of Jesus. In fact, uh, the majority of the people that followed Jesus lived on the border of poverty. They had to grow their food. They didn't just go to Ralph's or Vaughn's and buy their zucchini and make whatever you make with zucchini. They <laughs> I love zucchini. I, I gotta be honest. But they would have to grow their crops. They would have to labor. They would have to trade and barter. That's how life was. That's why Jesus, the majority of the parables and the majority of the teachings of Jesus are based out of what? An agrarian culture. And so his examples are very agrarianish, agricultural. You would be in poverty if you lacked work in the days of Jesus. If you lacked skill, if you were in debt, if you were div a divorced woman with no prospects for marriage. One of the biggest reasons I believe that Jesus hammers on the subject of divorce and for faithfulness. Um, yes, because of the, the moral reasons, but also the social reasons too. That if, if a woman back then, if she were to be divorced, no guy takes her in. She's on the streets, and you know what you do on the streets to make a living. That was just the reality of first century Palestine. 
but you knew that you were in really bad shape if you were at the bottom of the poverty scale, if you were blind or disabled. You were essentially powerless. And so this morning's talk is titled, The God Who Stopped. Today we're talking about the God who stopped. Now let's be honest, you might be thinking, Houston, we've got a problem. The pastor on stage just said God stops, but doesn't the Bible say God never slumbers? God never sleeps, he's always active. Yeah, but Jesus stopped. There's this fascinating story that's found in the Gospel of Mark that we're gonna dive into. It's about a blind beggar on the roadside by the name of Bartimaeus. Now, just to pause for a second, Bartimaeus just basically means Bar, son of, in Hebrew, Timaeus, his father's name. So this blind beggar didn't even have a name. We don't even know his name, but we know that he's named after his dad. That was, that was usually the case, um, unless you were somebody really famous or known. But it, we, we know that his name is Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, whose call for help literally stopped God. His cry for help literally stopped Jesus. Why? Because God is never too busy. Never too busy to hear us when we call. God is never too busy to hear us when we call. Now, Jesus was real busy. Several days before Jesus goes into Jerusalem, called the city of David, on the day that we call Palm Sunday, which is why you saw kids running around and burning calories with palms. And it, uh, parents, you're very welcome because a great, a great child is a tired child. And so uh, when they get home, they'll probably just want to relax a little bit because they were walking around the church. Uh, but that's the day that Jesus goes into Jerusalem with, uh, on, a, on a donkey as, as we read this morning. And the crowd was going crazy. But on his way to Jerusalem... Um, well, way before that, he visits this town called Bethany because he gets word that his pal named Lazarus was sick, and Lazarus dies. Jesus' friend dies, and so Jesus goes to this town called Bethany, and he performs one of his greatest miracles. He raises his pal from the dead. Now, what would you do if your friend or someone that you knew was in, in town, and you hear that they raised somebody from the dead. What would you do? Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, my gosh. There you go. He, he said, I would have a party. I'd, I'd, I'd kiss the person that did that. I'd, I'd follow him. I'd invite him. Exactly. Exactly. And so people started to gather around Jesus because of his miracles. Because dead people don't rise. So the miracles that Jesus was starting to do gathered this crowd because they were fascinated by him. And they were asking themselves, is he really the one that we've been waiting for? Living under Roman oppression for so long. Is he the one that's going to free us from our, from our uh, captors? Is he the one that the prophets have been talking about for millennia? And so the crowds go wild. They begin to follow Jesus like a parade. Meanwhile, the religious elite, they're fuming. They want Jesus dead. And guess what? They want Lazarus dead too. Now, I don't know. If I was Lazarus, I'd be like, dude, I just... <laughs> Really? <laughs> so Jesus hears about this, and, and so what he does is he flees the scene, and he goes off to be with the Father. Oftentimes you find Jesus saying, guys, time out, I gotta go. And he goes into the wilderness to be with his Father. He goes to the city of um, Ephraim. And then he comes back, and he, he continues his journey to Jerusalem. And on his way to Jerusalem, he's on his way to this, he uh, goes to this this old and dusty and warm city 900 feet below sea level called Jericho. It's a really old city. You, read, you, um, you can read about it in the Old Testament. And so he goes to Jericho, and meanwhile the crowds are still following Jesus because of his miracles. 
And Jesus is poised for Jerusalem because it was prophesied. Now, this is where our story begins in the gospel according to Mark chapter 10, verse 46 to 52. Let me read it for you. Then they reached the city of Jericho, and Jesus and his disciples were leaving town. A large crowd followed him, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was close by, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. When those around Bartimaeus heard him say this, they yelled, be quiet. Hearing this, Bartimaeus shouted even louder, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard Bartimaeus, he stopped and said, tell him to come here. So they called the blind man and said, cheer up. Get up. He's calling you. Bartimaeus threw aside his cloak, jumped up, and came to Jesus. What do you want, to do? What do you want me to do for you, says Jesus. My rabbi the blind man said, I want to see. And Jesus says to him, go. He actually says, go, go your way. For your faith has healed you. And instantly, the man could see. And he followed Jesus down the road. Now, how many of you enjoy going to sports games? Raise your hands. All right. Now, keep, keep your hands up. If you like to go to sports games, keep your hands up. Now, how many of you uh, get really animated at sports games? How many of you yell and shout and get really passionate and fired up for the team? Uh, come on. All right. All right. Now, can I be honest? Uh, I'm just as guilty as you. I do the same thing. In fact, my wife constantly, like when you know, we, we go to see our, our son play basketball, constantly she's telling me, Manny, Manny. Our pastor. Stop. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> See, I like giving advice to coaches. I do. If they just listened to me, they'd, the game would be so much better. And I, and I love to critique the players because if they just hear what I'm trying to say, that the game would win. They'd do so much better. And I do it quite loudly. I, I mean, honestly, I'm not arguing. I'm just, I'm just trying to explain why I'm right. But the truth is, no one's listening to me. And most likely, no one's listening to you. Now, maybe your kid is playing basketball or football or something, and they can hear you, and they're like, Dad, shh, you're embarrassing me. Which, that's happened to me before. <laughs> now, Bartimaeus was crying out. No, not for his favorite team. He was desperate. Bartimaeus was desperate to get God's attention. It was do or die for him. It was either now or never. Have you ever had a now or never moment in your life? A defining moment where if you don't act right now, then the opportunity is gone. John Mark, who we call Mark, who wrote the second gospel in the New Testament, Mark wrote this gospel account of the life of Jesus. But there are some really important nuances that Mark, the author, wants to share with us. But we're not going to fully get the story if we just zoom through. We've got to slow down, or else we're going to miss the message. So is it okay if I just do a brain dump real quick? Yeah? yeah? I want to give some context to the story. So let's slow down. This is a good time to get your, no, your uh, note cards out because you might want to take some notes. There's a good chance that Bartimaeus had already heard of the rumors of Jesus of Nazareth as the stories of his message and his miracles had already spread through the region. Jesus was a popular guy. Popular guy. Like most beggars, you'd want to position yourself in a location where you get maximum visibility. So more people could see you and have pity on you so that they could what? 
give you money. Mark tells us that Bartimaeus wasn't on the road where the crowds were following Jesus. No, 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 no. Not for Bartimaeus. He could not see. Bartimaeus was on the sidelines, sitting on the roadside, blind because he couldn't see. But he knew that Jesus of Nazareth was in his city. And not only that, that Jesus was actually close by. If it wasn't already obvious, the roaring of the crowds gave it away. That he wasn't only in town, he was actually really close to him. Jesus, his disciples, the entourage, and the crowds all on their way to Jerusalem, to the city of David, to hail Jesus as Israel's King and Messiah. Boy, to be a fly on the wall or a lizard on a rock. It's a hot city. There's rocks and lizards. I don't know. You, you get the point. <laughs> to be there and to see what's going on. Who would want to get in the way of this historic occasion? Jesus' entire ministry was leading up to this penultimate moment. Why would God stop? Doesn't make sense. So what does Bartimaeus do? In a bold act of desperation, this blind beggar shouts, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Take pity on me. He's proclaiming the gospel in the midst of a crowd. He's saying, the one that we've been waiting for in the Old Testament, this one was, this person that they're waiting for was, was to come and bring dominion and to make Israel a strong kingdom and to conquer over sin. But he's talking about it in a tone of Jesus as Savior, not Jesus as conqueror. Just like Pastor Rebecca wrote this morning, that Jesus didn't come on a white horse. He came on a donkey. You know, when, when God wants to to change the world, he doesn't do what Alexander the Great or other world-dominating leaders have done. You, you, you bring in the tanks. You, you, you bring in the guns. You bring the horses, the cavalry, and submission by power. Jesus brings a donkey into Jerusalem. How else would the Prince of Peace change hearts and lives? So he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, he probably yelled really loud. Verse 48 says, the crowds yelled back, or the crowd yelled back, be quiet. In the middle of his cry for help, they essentially tell him to shut up. And shut up doesn't mean shut up. It actually implies that God is way too busy to listen to your agenda, blind man. It implies that God has way more important things on his list of to do than to get involved in your story. Be quiet means that God will not stop for your struggles. That the voice, that your voice, does not matter. That's what be quiet means. And so hearing this, Bartimaeus is even more determined. So he shouts even louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus hears Bartimaeus, the God of the universe stops. Why would Jesus stop? You know, despite the voices around Bartimaeus, despite the voices around us, <laughs> despite even our own preconceived ideas about who God is and how God does things, God is never too busy to hear you and I when we call. Despite the voices around us and the messages that we get all the time, or even your own preconceived ideas about God, that God is never too busy to hear us when we call. He's never too busy to hear you and I when we call. Now, this was a defining moment for this blind beggar because it's in this moment that his desire becomes stronger than his disability. It's in this moment that his desperation begins to speak louder than his pain. 
Bartimaeus' cry for help literally stops God. Verse 49 says, when Jesus heard Bartimaeus, he stopped and said, tell him to come here. So they called the blind man and said, cheer up, get up. He's calling you. Cheer up, get up, he's calling you. Do you hear the contradiction? Just moments ago, they said, shut up. And now they're like, get up, cheer up. I mean, what do you want me to do? <laughs> like, who do I listen to? What is the voice of truth? See, in our lives, people will say all kinds of things. The crowds are going to say all kinds of things. The media will say all kinds of things. Your friends are going to say all kinds of things. Like, there's so much white noise around us, but there's so much mixed messages around us. And even in your most confusing time, where you want truth, we sometimes get, we want the right thing, but we go to the wrong places. And for, for Bartimaeus, he just wants Jesus' attention. And he gets it. John chapter 10, verse 27 says this. He says, my sheep, this is the words of Jesus now. He says, my sheep, listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. You know, Jesus knew Bartimaeus, his pain and his cry, before he even got to the city. Jesus, the God who stopped, hears Bartimaeus and invites him into conversation. That's the kind of God that we worship. Verse 50 says, Bartimaeus threw off his cloak. He jumped up, and he came to Jesus. Now, of all the things that the author mentions, that Mark writes about the story, why would he write he threw his cloak? It doesn't make sense. It's like Jesus is teaching and then he sneezes, and the writer writes, and Jesus sneezed. Like, why do you write that? I mean, I don't get it's, it's a, it's a, It seems like an insignificant detail. <laughs> right? Why did he write that he, the first thing he does after Jesus has come here, he throws off this long cloak. He throws it aside. He jumps up. In fact, in, in the Greek, it actually springs up. He just, you know, he springs up, and he goes towards Jesus. Most probably, they kind of guided him to Jesus. It's interesting that Mark uses this word. He throws off his cloak. What is Mark trying to tell us? And why does this even matter? See, I don't believe that Bartimaeus' greatest act of faith was calling out to Jesus, even though that took faith. It also took desperation. And I don't believe that his, the, the greatest act of his faith was the second time that he, he shouts, tries to get Jesus' attention, and they say, shut up to him. I don't think that was the greatest act of faith, even though it took determination. I am convinced that Bartimaeus' greatest act of faith was the very first thing that he did when Jesus stopped and said, come here. You're like, what? How? I'm glad you asked. You see, in the ancient world, being blind was oftentimes seen as a curse. They even believed that, like, you sinned or you're mommy and daddy sinned, or your grandparents sinned, or somebody in your family line did something really, really heinous that God's now taking his displeasure on you. You know what? This isn't in my, um, in my notes. I, I know that we can easily fall in the danger of, of, of this idea of, like, a karma god, this god of retribution, it's actually called um, retribution theology. It's when, like, you do good, God does good. You do bad, then God. There's no nuance. Like, it, there's no talk about, like, built in every action that we do is, is some kind of a reaction. Like, if I, if I kick my dog, she'll bite me, right? It's action, reaction. <laughs> if, if you yell at somebody for no reason, they're going to say, why are you yelling at me? It's, it's kind of in the mix. And there is this thing where that if you, if you live according to God's ways, that there's this blessing that comes with that. But it's not because, you know, you scratch God's back, he's going to scratch yours. It doesn't work that way. Sometimes good things happen to bad people. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. Sometimes good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people. It's, there's no, like, formula to this. So being blind was seen as a curse. If you were blind, you were almost guaranteed to be in poverty. Why? Because there was li literally no way that you could earn a living 
and to support yourself financially. You were essentially powerless in poverty. So you would position yourself in public places, like the side of the road, to be seen so that you can beg for money. For this reason, authentic beggars, authentic beggars, were given a cloak issued by the government that legitimized their begging and their poverty. And sometimes it was so big that they would actually lay it on the floor while they were sitting down so people would see, oh, yeah, yeah, they're, they're a beggar, and they would just throw some denarii there for them. It was like a, some kind of a social welfare, welfare system of first century Palestine to take care of the most vulnerable. This gave them permission to beg on the streets. Are you with me so far? And so a beggar's identity and source of income was defined by the cloak. Bartimaeus, his sense of security, his sense of identity, his source of sustainability, all came from his cloak. That's why I think his greatest act was to throw his cloak off when he heard Jesus. It was the thing that tethered him to his present and his past. When he throws his cloak off, he's actually risking his entire future on Jesus. By letting go of his cloak, he's letting go of his past, trusting and hoping that I hope if he can heal and raise dead people, then he can probably help me too. That trusting that if God stopped for him, then God would move in him. This right here, I think, defines the quality of his faith. And you know what? Jesus knew that too. So now he's invited into conversation with Jesus. And verse 51 says, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus says, my rabbi, I want to see. Now the word rabbi in the New Testament is mentioned like 19 times. But Bartimaeus doesn't say rabbi. Now you're like, what's rabbi? Well, let me explain. The word rabbi means teacher or great teacher. Um, just like in the Greek days where people would follow um, like Aristotle and Plato, these great thinkers of their age. Same thing in the Jewish culture, that you would raise your children, your, your sons, and the goal, I mean, you know that your, your kid made it if they followed after a rabbi. It was, it was a cultural thing. It was like their university, it was their college, it was their education, it was their status. So if you follow a rabbi, like, you would serve them. You would cook them food sometimes. It was like, I am going to devote my life to you for an X number of years, and in return, you are going to pour into me all that you know. You're going to shape me, and when I get older, I am also going to be a rabbi or a teacher or a religious leader of some sort. But it starts with the way of the rabbi. But it's interesting that Bartimaeus doesn't say rabbi. He uses another word. It's rabuni. In Hebrew, that doesn't mean teacher. That means my teacher. It actually means my Lord, my master. There's only two places in the New Testament that that word is used. One, it's right here with, with Bartimaeus. The other is when Mary Magdalene, who Jesus heals her of demons, the only person of all the disciples and all the people that followed, the only person that was bold and faithful to follow her rabbi. And she's looking on Easter Sunday, which we're going to celebrate next Sunday. And she doesn't recognize this guy that's risen from the dead until he speaks to her. And her first words are, Rabuni. She says, my rabbi. 
Do you see a commonality? The one that's healed, the one with the debt that's forgiven the most, that is the one that's probably grateful, the most grateful. The lower you are below par, the, the, the greater you are grateful for being above par. And this is what Bartimaeus says to Jesus. My teacher, I want to see. Why? Because God was never too busy to hear his prayer. Let, let me ask you a question. Where in your life do you need God to stop? Let's just take a moment for a second. Where in your life do you need God to stop? At what, what part of your life do you need Jesus to stop? Is it in broken relationships? Your family, your marriage, your children's lives, your grandchildren, your friends? Is it your fears of tomorrow? Is it your pain from your past? Is it depression, your mental health, anger? Confidence, loneliness, your health? What is it for you? Do you think that God is too busy to hear your call? Do you think God is busy doing God's stuff that he has no time to hear you when you call? I just have three thoughts from Bartimaeus' life that I think might help us maybe to get God to stop in our lives. Here are the points for today. We need a call out. We need to let go. And we need to get real. Call out, let go, and get real. First, call out. Mark 10.47 says, When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was close, he began to shout. We need to resist the lie that tells us that God is either too far away or that he's too busy to listen to us. This is a lie that stemmed from the Enlightenment in Europe that God is too busy dealing with heavenly stuff and he has no interest in human affairs. An, an idea that gave birth to this, this thinking called deism. That God is busy doing God things and we are down here and God doesn't mix himself in the affairs. He pushes us the, the domino of creation and everything moves. But God is God and, and so God has nothing to do with us. We can't believe in this lie that culture is telling us. Psalms 145.18 says, The Lord is close to all who call upon him. Yes, to all who call on him in truth. I found that most often, it's not God that's far away from me. It's me that's far away from God. I used to always pray, God be with me, and sometimes I do. And maybe you do too. But I don't know, five or six years ago, I, I God kind of impressed on my heart to start saying, God, help me to be with you. God is with us, <laughs> even in your most loneliest and desolate times that you feel like no one's with you, and you feel lonely and by yourself. But God is with us. God is with you. So I started praying, God, help me to be with you. Because God is closer than we think, and he wants us to call out to him. When do you typically call out to God? Let me ask it this way. How do you cultivate a spiritual hunger for God? I think sometimes it's in the devastation of life, or sometimes it's in the desperation for God. Sometimes you just want God so much. God, I need you like oxygen. I enjoy your presence. You're desperate for him. But sometimes it's desperation. I mean, it's um, devastation. When what you plan for your life doesn't go the way that it should. That when your hopes are robbed from you, and you're like, how do I move forward now? God, where are you in all of this? If I had to be honest, I think it's often in the most difficult times that we call out to God. Painful circumstances are often the undesired gifts that stir up within us a hunger for God. Let me say it again. Painful circumstances are often the undesired gifts that stir up within us a hunger for God. I think sometimes we're in situations where, where we don't call out to God too. And I thought about this a lot. I don't think it's because we don't believe God can. I think we just don't think that he will. 
You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes we don't reach out to God is because we either think he's far away or we just, we know cognitively that God can because he's done it in the lives of others. We just don't think that he will for us. But I think we have to call out because God is never too busy to hear us when we call. Once we call out, then we have to what? Let go. Let go. Verse 50 says, Bartimaeus threw off his cloak, jumped up, and came to Jesus. Bartimaeus' cloak was his most valuable possession because it was a part of his identity. It was a symbol of his old life. Some of us might want a new life, but we're not really willing to let go of the old. Some of us want the new life, the good life that Jesus has for us. But we're still holding on to our cloaks. Past habits, past patterns that creep their way into the now. And they continue to leave us empty, even though we believe in Jesus. What do you need to let go of today? Think about it. Write it down. What is your cloak? As Corey read earlier, since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, what, what does Paul say? Throw off your former way of life, your old self corrupted by its, its deceitful desires. Instead, let the Spirit renew your mind, your thoughts, and your attitudes. What? Clothe yourself with the new nature, the new self that is created to be like God in righteousness. Now the word righteousness can mean different things, but it in justice, goodness, and holiness. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us, what? Throw off every weight that keeps us down. Any sin that trips us up. Let's run this race that God has prepared for us with what? With endurance and with perseverance. As what? We focus, sight, blind language here, as we focus our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. Notice it doesn't say of my faith, of faith. This ocean that you are swimming in. God is writing a new story in your life, but you got to throw off your cloak if you want to put on Christ. There are no halvesies. You can't be like, I'm going to put on Jesus today, but tomorrow I'm going to take it off and wear my other one. It, it, it doesn't work. You're, you become a disintegrated person. You're divided, and it eventually just eats at your soul. You're no good for that world, and you're no good for this world. And so you remain bound. You got to throw off your cloak to wear Christ. There is no other way to live in the new. Now, that does not mean that you can't struggle. That does not mean that every once in a while the old doesn't creep back in, because it does. For some of us, maybe it's decades that we've given into habits. You think it's going to just all of a sudden go away in like days? It can. But from... My experience and those that I've talked to, it takes discipline. It takes, it takes time. Give grace to yourself. Because God gives you grace. Wearing Christ means that we now have a new identity, a new family. We talk about this all the time. A new family, a new story, a renewed mind, a new heart, and a new reason and purpose for life with a new future. If we want to see God stop in our lives, what do we need to do? We need to call out. We need to let go. And then our last point, we need to get real. I want to ask the band to come up. Mark 10, 51 says, And Jesus asked, What do you want me to do for you? Did you know that when God asks you a question, it's not because he's looking for the answer? When God asks you a question, he's not looking for the answer. What kind of God would not know the answer? When God is asking you and I a question, when God asks us a question, 
It is because he wants us to navigate through our false sense of attachments and our misguided motives so that we can get to know ourselves as we get to know God. You see, God doesn't live in the land of superficialities. But we have to get real with God. You know why? Because God can do anything. But what God cannot do is transform the person that we're pretending to be. God can do anything, but he can't transform the person that we're pretending to be. You want to see God stop in your life? You just got to get honest. We got to get honest. Just like he asked Bartimaeus, he's asking you and I the same question. Jesus is asking the same thing. What do you want me to do for you? Where in your life do you need sight, friends? Where in your, li your life do you need insight? Or foresight. Where do you need God to open your eyes? If we want to see God stop in our lives, we need to call out. We just can't stay where we are. If we want to see God move in our lives, we need to throw off any weight, any, any hindrance that's holding back you and I in this race. And we need to just get real. God loves us. His deepest desire is for us to draw close to him. You know, miracles require movement. You're like, but I can't move. It's okay. God has already moved towards you. We call out. We let go. And we get real. Can we stand for a second? I want us to take a moment to call out to the Lord. You know, God stopping in our lives isn't a luxury, it's a necessity. And I don't know how you develop desire. I just don't know. I, I want people to desire. I want to desire more. I want our children to desire. It's just like, you, I wish there was a pill you can give them and say, here you go, take this. And all of a sudden, your heart's just passionate for Jesus. I don't know. But I know that you can, you can ask God for desire. Like, I don't desire. I'm just really busy. You're not a priority. You're just like salt and pepper. You just add flavor to my life. You're not the core of my life. It's okay. But you got to call out and say, God, will you give me desire? Let's pray together. I want everybody closed. Some of you are battling something really heavy right now. There's something in your life that's just weighing you down, and you know what it is. Some of you are just tired and worn out, and you're running life on fumes. You've been on empty for a while. Some of us are depressed, but some of us aren't depressed. Some of us are just existing in a state of languishing where we just don't have any desire. We're just apathetic and just floating. Some of us have no drive, no energy, no spark. Some of us here today are lamenting the brokenness of our world. Some of us are calling out on behalf of our, of our spouses, our children, our parents, our friends, or maybe your loved ones, maybe those that died in the tragic shooting in Nashville. Maybe your heart's broken for them, and you're like, God, why? Why does this happen? Maybe you're here and you believe in Jesus, but that's all you got is just belief. <laughs> and religion has come, has become kind of dry. But you want a desire to desire. Maybe you're here today and, and you're like, you know, I don't know everything about God, but I know that I want to make a step towards, towards Jesus. And I want to follow him for the first time. Let's pray together, God. Help us, God, to call out to you, God. Help us to know that you are the God that is never too busy to hear us when we call. And that if you stopped for Bartimaeus, God, then you will stop for us. 
Some of us are holding on to things that we just need to let go. Some of us are holding things really tight. Some of us are just in the middle of just, of just giving up. Some of us want to make the next move, God, towards you. Will you embolden us today? God, will you help us to hear your voice calling out to us, come to me. If you're tired and you're weary, come, and I'll give you rest. Let me show you what life is like. Let me give you rhythm. Let me give you life. So today, Lord Jesus, wherever we are, if we need to call out, if we need to let go, and if we need to get real, God, will you just inspire us to do what we need to do, God, because you are the God that hears us when we call. In Jesus' name, amen. declaration of our dependence on God. That's what worship does. It refocuses us, realigns us to know what's good and what's true. Lord, we thank you and help us, God, with trust that looks like throwing off cloaks, God, to follow you and to pursue you into deeper faithfulness and to greater obedience to you, King Jesus, because you are the God that stopped, and you are never too busy to hear us when we call. And the church says together, amen. Hey, so glad you're here. If you're new here, we'd love to meet you. Uh, if you want prayer, uh, you can just come down, and we'd love to pray for you. But check this out. We have devotional packets. Today is Palm Sunday, and we are going to be going day to day from uh, Sunday, Monday, all the way to Easter Sunday together as a church. So please pick one up at the connections table. We also have them on PDF. And then second, we've got grilled hot dogs after service, so you don't want to miss out on some delicious grilled hot dogs. Uh, <laughs> you, you, guys are, you guys are bad. And then third, we've got a petting zoo. If you like animals, there's animals outside. Go and have a great week. God bless you. <laughs>